You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Karen Kowalowski. She has over 20 very successful and rewarding years leading startup and growth stage companies in digital and tech industries. Her experience spans sales, marketing, human resources, operations, and all aspects of the customer journey. Holding roles ranging from VP, general manager, to VP of operations, to CEO. She has driven the integration and stabilization of organizations experienced in mergers and acquisitions, hypergrowth, or disruptive processes. On this week's episode, we talk about when starting to work with a company, where are there usually skeletons? What is life like after being a CEO? Mergers and acquisitions pre and post closing, what are some integration best practices? Is there a disconnect between the Silicon Valley elite and the rest of Silicon Valley and the rest of the world, and much more. All right, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. And I'm super excited for this week's guest. So she was introduced to us by Maya Tusing, who is a previous guest, and everyone here knows that's my mentor. So she's given me so much advice in life and business and that. So I'm really excited to meet this week's guest. So Karen, could you give our audience a little bit of background of your career up until this point? Absolutely. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So I started my career in ad agency life. So Interestingly, with that, what it does is it grounds you in two things, marketing communications, and I was in account management. So how do you understand client and market needs? I started that years ago, and I probably spent the first 15 years of my career in that kind of world and evolving where I ran regions and marketplaces. So you go into a regional manager or general manager kind of mindset, and that took me into executive leadership. I was acquired, or our company was acquired by a really large agency, which then brought me into the world of merger and acquisitions. We were acquired and then continued to do acquisitions. We did something like 13 in a one-year period just in my region. They were national, and so I was- more than one a month. It was ridiculous, and and actually it was a lot of fun, but they were all different. So some we acquired just the people, some we acquired their clients and no employees, and some we acquired everything and we were part of it up front. So there was a lot of differences, which that's how the acquisition world is today, right? Everything looks different, you never know what you're gonna get. But it started me in this sort of disruptive change But I was still within an agency, ad agency world, and we did both product and corporate communication. So again, my mindset was, how do you bring a company together and make it grow? But how are we marketing and speaking to people? And how are we speaking to our clients? And how do we speak to the marketplace? And those were, those become and have stayed my foundation as I moved into other arenas. Following that, I went into a startup world. I moved to a media company that was doing a transition, a massive transition of their, just their revenue models back when people were moving into pay for placement and that kind of a thing. And so they needed somebody that understood the internal and external audiences. And so it's a media company. You have clients, you have content, you have people selling to make ad revenue, and then you have your internal teams. So that took me into a slightly different, and then from there I've done a couple of startups. So all of these are disruptive change environments, 
places where you have to be cautious of what's happening internally and externally, and you have to evolve in revenue models and business plans. So I think I found myself always loving that, that really chaotic, like how do you take chaos and make it calm again? Or how do you take chaos and keep it moving, but in a productive way? And I've stayed within those sort of industry norms since then, but really all started from being in an agency environment where you have to learn how to speak and align yourself to what the needs are externally. So that's my, my record. and I've done, so I've done this startup to going public, to exits of just purchase, private to, to purchase. And I've also done a wind down, which is the least fun, but it is also a necessary sort of exit or end of um, programs too. I've been brought in for some things like that. So, so I want to <laughs> yeah. excite and especially as you mentioned, 13 in one year yeah. with somewhere asset purchases, somewhere aqua hire, somewhere it's out yeah. the whole gamut. Were you on the integration team? Uh, were you looking, scouting the deals? Where were you in this? So when it started, I really was just on the um, integration team. When we were purchased, I was with a, I was with a medium size. I say medium because we were in eight, eight U.S. locations across, so across the country, but eight locations. We ran large regions, and when they purchased that company, which was, yay, shout out to Rogers & Associates, just way back when, we were set up to be the executive team to help support the process. Um, the company that was buying us wanted to get into a new industry and market stream. So they, it was a very strategic, they worked in a certain industry, they worked in a certain type of agency, and we were another kind of niche. So the goal was, we bring these people who've been running for a while, let them help and be our management teams. And at that point, now we're there, we were a little more involved in integration. And in some cases, I'd say sooner than later, right? But in, in some, it was, this is a national company in my market. I happen to have an office, so I'm more part of the integration. In other, it was a single, small, local agency that maybe was purchased. I'm more involved in it because it's a one entity. It's not part of the national. But we were... So it was up and down in variety. But we did some sourcing that really came later. It started off that you were assigned and you're going you're gonna to get the deal. But I did all the integrations. I walked into buildings once where it was just file cabinets, file cabinets and the one person that was left. And those clients were told nothing changes. This is a great thing for you. You're part of a big organization now. And well, we didn't even know who the clients were. I'm like opening up file cabinets to see what the background. We had it on a spreadsheet, but that doesn't tell you anything. So that was a fun one. <laughs> For these transactions, you were in so many different ones. Would they bring you in after the deal was done or would they say, okay, we're going to, we just signed an LOI. We want mm -hmm. your thoughts of what this integration would actually look like. And you were kind of part of it. And for our audience out there, the reason I'm really interested in this is yeah. you get everyone here knows I'm an investment banker and yeah. it's really interesting to hear about the integration process for an acquisition. So the steps are normally you market the company, you go out to market, find the buyer, some negotiations happen, a letter of intent signed, then right. there's this confirmatory due diligence where they're diving into everything and then documents are signed, money's transferred, whatever, and then that company is with the new company. So during that time, that due diligence period, or maybe the LOI or even before, yep. when were you brought in to give your thoughts to the, maybe the MMA team, like, right. hey, this would be a good fit for us or not? Right. So that particular part of it came later in my career, a little bit later. So this was early first. This was the first sort of experience, although it was a dump in the deep end kind of experience. 
first experience within those M&A world. In those particular ones, we had an amazing team. They were based out of New York. A gentleman, Jim Tracy, he was all, he's the one that took us public. He was really the key part of it, him and his team. And we came in and certainly had a huge influence because we were writing the new business plans, the business models. We were doing the integration. We were meeting with when there were employees, how do you do it, what's working. Because you were part of the executive team, I had a lot of influence on the integration as it relates to the company as a whole, not just my region, right? This is all going to roll up. I was in a large market, right? I'm on the West Coast. I'm in one of the larger markets. But they came in, had probably a list that was already in process. We were just the first to help them execute. So as I moved forward in my career, what I would tell you is those ones I was more involved in speaking with the investment teams looking at the list of potential, who out there might work, who isn't. And I had a little bit more, I would say, conversational influence and, and more than tactical influence. But integration, always. From day one, integration and understanding. And integration both internally and externally. Because you have to remember, when you're doing an, a, any kind of M&A, and I know people know this intuitively, but the impact on the market and on your revenue streams and your customers is astronomical. And that's the piece that often gets lost. Like you spend and you think about it and you're like, oh, it's going to be great for everybody. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. And have you thought about how you're going to communicate the new value instead of just being a cheerleader? I always say cheerleading doesn't support. Cheerleading is just cheerleading. But how are you going to translate the value? Picturing all those high school cheerleaders right now crying. <laughs> going, they, got the negative about they got the touchdown because of me. <laughs> yeah, maybe they did. I'm not saying that there isn't some energy and motivation behind it. But how do you translate the value both to the people that you want to keep pushing along and then your client who it's pretty disruptive. All of a sudden something, especially, and again, it depends on the kind of acquisitions. This was, when this happened, these were large acquisitions or small companies becoming part of a big conglomerate. Today, you have a lot of mid, media, you know, little ones coming together. You have companies that maybe say they're going to continue to work independently. There's still a, a different parent on top. You have to remember that, that even if you're going to be left to run as your own entity, there are things that do change, just expectations because there's a new leader regardless. So those are the things that I think often get pushed aside as it's all a positive benefit and how do you transition that? So those are the different side of the conversations, of course, coming from what you were asking when you're talking to your, your investment bankers. And those are fun ones. And I've done many more of those post that first world. But I keep to my heart is the integration of the rest of it. It's close to my soul on that one. <laughs> I want to keep asking questions. As yeah. We also have this huge question list. That we, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> you can get to whatever. <laughs> so staying, staying on the topic okay. of the integration, where do you see, say a startup gets acquired, mm -hmm. where do you see the biggest issues with that integration? Is it the culture? Is it the startup saying, hey, I've been independent for five years? Say, say yeah. they got acquired after their A round, they've been around five years, there's a team of maybe 20. Yeah. So you just merged like three of the things we were talking about. <laughs> We've gone through so much. So I think that, I think fundamentally, in my experience, the biggest challenges of an integration, or I'll say even forget integration, an acquisition process. Fundamentally, there are three things that I think are consistently out there. Number one is realigning of mission and vision. And I don't mean that as a board exercise on the side. I think really understanding why did you do it? What is the purpose? What was the expected purpose coming out of it? Like, what's that greater good look like now? I mean, if it was to 
add an, a, a different line of business? Was it to add market share? Was it because you did love the technology? Like what it, really, what was it? And then translate that to, so what does that mean for us? And then therefore for our clients? Because I think what happens is, yeah, we're gonna get a new technology, it's gonna be great. We're gonna get so much more in revenue. We get some really smart people. And then they, you just move forward and you don't take the time. And I don't mean a lot of time, but you don't re-articulate. So what happens is then you, from there, if you haven't done that and done a good job with that, and determining, by the way, what's going to be integrated. Is it just back office? Are there skill alignments? Do we need to educate people because we are going to let cross-selling happen? That's another really big one. Like you just wanted a new channel, but you didn't necessarily prep your people to cross-sell. So. If you haven't figured out the goal, then the next thing you tend to not do is reiterate that into your sort of brand and your sales value and your propositions. And if you don't do that, your internal team can't speak to it and they certainly can't tell your clients or your partners the right way. And then you have these clients sitting on the outside that are confused as to what's different and what maybe is good for them or not. So those are the two things. So it's first is just really making sure you understood why and being able to articulate it. Number two, realign it in a communication pack process that educate the internal teams and gets them excited about it. Again, not just drilling, but really makes them understand it and then allows them to be able to sell it and speak to it. And then my third thing is I think it's the balance between the revenue generation, the revenue management, and, and then the delivery process. Because delivery process and workflow, if you even change one thing, that changes. Could you dive deeper into those three? <laughs> yeah. Because I, 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 from the demographics of our audience, mostly early stage companies, mm -hmm. I think talking about the revenue in those three parts, yeah. I think that could yes. really be interesting. Sure. So the revenue streams, obviously, it's we need sales. Everybody wants sales. Put time into sales. How do you grow it? I think, and founders are pretty amazing and smart people, right? So they can say, oh, we're going to need more people to play this, we're gonna need more people to go out and we wanna push it. But what happens is, as the revenue comes in, you have to be able to manage it, you have to have the teams that manage it, and the other thing that happens is founders end up selling themselves, right? It's just a nature of your early stage startup, your one to five years, your five to 10 mil, however that works, you're still selling you, and you can get caught into that. So. Number one, it's the revenue. Where is the revenue coming from? How are we, what is our plan for continuing to get the revenue? And how are we investing, which is also very hard in the sales process to get the revenue, right? If your money's tight. And then revenue management is who's managing that stream because you hope you have an ongoing, right? These are not one-off sales. I'm, I'm thinking in my head of like the subscription base plus the add-ons, right? Those are what we want. We want monthly revenue streams we want ongoing. So how is that being managed and how is the upselling of those different than someone bringing in new revenue? And how do you make sure you keep that? Because it's really easy to lose more out the back door when you focus only on the front, right? So you, bring, you end up bringing in, but you're spending so much and people are leaving out the back. And then who's, how do you connect those dots so that everybody feels as if they're getting the priority and the essence of it? And then ultimately there's a workflow and a delivery and where is so my fundamental feeling and i think most people say that is your solutions always evolve by those two teams that i just spoke about the salesperson and the person managing the client you have have brilliant minds building stuff 
But what really makes it matter are the people that are talking to the market. And the people talking to the market are your salespeople and your account managers. So they're the ones that are listening to your clients and the clients' problems and what worked and what didn't work. So how do you then, that goes back to the management workflow, how does that get back so that you develop, continue to develop solutions or evolve solutions or address problems that make sure those clients stay and your revenue streams stay with you and they build? Like those are those pieces and they're interconnected. And I find that it's connecting those dots is typically the biggest challenge after an integration because it is disruptive on its most simple form if I have one more thing I can sell and I didn't communicate it to the people that are out in the marketplace, right? Even if I'm going to stand alone, but now you can, you're a new company, you can sell the new umbrella company, whatever it is, those are the pieces that fall apart and then eventually get to. So that, that's what I mean by it. So revenue streams, how are they coming? Where are they coming from? Who's responsible for them? But ultimately, how are you going to keep that going at a trajectory that is manageable? And then you can build your teams appropriately, right? Because you have to build those with those expectations. And then who's managing it and upselling them? And it can't always, you're not doing the same. And then ultimately, what's the feedback so that you can develop your products and services by those groups who are the ones that are speaking to the audience? During the integration, I'm really curious about, because people will have the financial models and Mm -hmm. they'll say, we're going to add this much revenue. We're going to do this. But when in the integration was the sales team allowed to know that the transaction was going to happen so you could even see if the product is a fit with the sales team or if the sales team yeah. could sell it. So business models that do financial projections, there's another group that's going to be mad at me after this. I, I understand the, the exercise. I'm an econ background. I get it. But it's an exercise. So number one, by the way, push it all in another nine months out because it takes so long to get these sales accounts. I think for the sales team, it's a very challenging place to be, especially if you are doing anything that is with a private company, right? Because those, it can go south, it can not work, it can do whatever. So I think that you have to bring in sales leadership early, but the sales team, you would hope that there is enough connectivity between your, the people outside and your leadership within sales that they can at least provide that perspective. That's what I, I would say. And then I think it's a very s- soft, challenging company by company decision on how far down you bring the rest in. If you bring it in too early, I guarantee you, your clients will hear about it, right? If you bring a salesperson in, they have amazing relationships. That's what they do. They're relationship building. They're gonna give somebody the inside scoop. Just on the they, golf course, yeah, you know. It doesn't even have to be on the golf course. It could be on Zoom. It could be on anything. Let me, it's just, that's the nature of it, right? You're telling someone or you're building it. But I do think it's valuable. So it's the, hopefully leadership has a tight hold on it. Now, if you have a really small, if it's a smaller kind of entity and they're bringing together a couple of smalls, I think that changes it too. But I don't know, it, it's a, I almost feel like your workflow and your account management is in a, in a way more critical early on than it is for your sales team. Because salespeople, your due diligence will have told you that it's probably got a market fit. How you finesse it and change your marketing goes back to that first thing I said. What did you do it for? Why? How are you articulating the value? And your salespeople, like they're rock stars, they're already bringing your revenue in. You're going to assume they'll make it happen. And after they do, by the way, you'll adjust it slightly. It's the, account, it's the people that are managing the existing customers on a day-to-day basis that I think end up with a more challenging role and a harder time 
if not given enough upside, because they'll upsell, give that group a big opportunity to upsell if there's new opportunities. But they're the ones that are often left really too late and they're in a day-to-day kind of necessity. That goes back to, you can tell where my heart started, right? I started in account management and agency life. So I always have a feel for people that are in that role it's, and it's often left to the last. So then what would be the best practice to get the most out of an acquisition? Would it be very early on have that playbook for the account managers? Mm. Would it be bringing that sales team early and say, we're upselling or introduce this product. You got 30 days to get familiar with it. What would be yeah. kind of a good process? I And actually another question on that. So sorry to give you too much. How, what's the best practice to analyze the company, the target company you're acquiring to see if their practices, their workflow will adjust easily to the new company? Yeah, like, <laughs> have you, you been there before? Balls. I know you <laughs> have. I'm like, well, and you can see, yeah, does it work together? So I think most of those best practices, uh, by nature, people, companies are going through them when they're doing due diligence. But remember, you talked about the due diligence. It's, it's a document. It's spreadsheets. It's looking at papers. It's looking at flows. Say, no, here's our accounting. No, we use this system. You use that system. We'll pick one. Those are not the challenged ripple effects, right? Yes, transition technology has a lot of problems. But to the first part of your question, I think to get the most of your team, to really get the most out of the acquisition, I'm going to go back to why did you do it? What was the fundamental reason that the, the acquisition happened? Was it because this product improves our product? Is it a completely different revenue channel? Like, like a whole different channel? Is it something that can be an additive? Because that will shape who next in the team needs to be talked with, right? The, and I'll give you an example. There was a, a company, I've not worked with them, but I know of them. They're large insurance company. Insurance is a kind of warranty business. Let's them run independently. There's no real reason. They don't have to get too involved in that transitional leadership impacted for sure. Ability to have access to probably a client list to go sell to, sure. But there's not, they're going to continue to be it. So it's more the back office, it's leadership. It's probably valuation expectations and revenue goals that make the, have the biggest impact. It's different if you have a technology company that you are acquiring the, the IP for another company that can be integrated into it or that's going to take it over. Those have a different consequence. So I think that in most cases, once you've determined why are you doing it, and then what are the expectations of that impact over the next 12 months, and that tells you who's the first in line, right? Different revenue channel versus a full integration versus back office only. Those things will all change depending on why did you really do the acquisition or the merger or however you want to negate these things. I know I didn't, it may or may not have answered your question, but I think that's the reality of it. For an acquisition, did you ever have a preference or in conversations come up with the topic of we prefer to acquire companies that are founder owned or ones that were mm. private equity backed that had maybe more processes put in place? Because each would one probably you get more value for your dollar, but the other has got the processes. So I'm wondering what I you just answered it, though. One is more value. And well, it, you often can afford <laughs> <Let's put> it <laughs> that way. Private equity, the dollars, they tend to be different. They have different high expectations. They're going into the sale with different sorts of expecta- expectations or traction and movement often with founders, right? There, it's, you've got a founder that's 
getting tired or wants to move it or this is their exit. This is their, their this was their vision when they started their company. I think there's just more of that happens. There's a different flexibility in the negotiations than you get with your private equity. I don't know that there is a preference one or the other, but I do think you typically, it has much more to do with where your board and your finances are and what their sort of capacity for the experience and their capacity to continue to fund and to ex- sort of extend through the process. That I was through one where the, there was false expectations. You, we talked about it, there was false expectations of what the company could sell for. So that was number one challenge. Number two challenge was the longer that takes, the value started to diminish because even if you are private, there's whispers and words. And so you find internally challenges continue to erode maybe the business and how stuff is happening. The people who have been providing the funding up to that point, it was privately held, are starting to be fatigued and now they want it done, but they still, there's one or two that want a bigger return, which stalls the process. And in the end, you end up getting far less for that than you thought when you were trying to sell, right, that you got. And I think on the other side, people capitalize on that. So if you're on the side selling, it can be excruciatingly painful and you can end up losing a lot of money if you aren't careful and quick and thoughtful. On the other side, it's a great opportunity to get some stuff. What type of conversations are, is, was there a way that you'd position it to maybe those, some people that were stuck saying no, or were there never any access to them? No, there was, I, I had in that particular example, there was access. I don't believe there was the desire, right? It's like, I'm fatigued, but I have the capacity to let sit this out. So I'm going to sit it out. And I will tell you in the end, completely lost the dollar amount. You know, it, it continues to erode, right? It, the pricing went down um, because there is, I think one of the challenges that I've seen in deals in general, and I'm sure you see it all the time, the longer a deal takes, right? The longer a deal takes, the more energy is lost, the more information has leaked out of whatever room that conversation happens, and just because it does. And that, and those two things have a ripple impact on the people running the business, whether they think it does or it doesn't, right? It just, it does. And so it starts to erode your internal teams in a way that you probably can't foresee until it starts happening and it potentially then erodes your client base because they start to feel, I don't know if it's worse service or technology isn't being updated as quickly or something happens. So the longer deals take, it's just easier, I would say, for an organization to decide if you're gonna do the deal, make a decision and move on, do or don't. But these processes, which is why my recommendation to companies that are looking for investors, don't take years, but get your stuff in order first so that when the process starts, you can move. Yeah. Because otherwise, it, it just, it's just too long and it will erode on all ends. It will erode across the board. It amazes me. <laughs> Conversation I'll have when people go, let's go out tomorrow. You're like, we haven't built that room yet. We haven't yeah, the- even started doing the marketing materials. Like, oh, we're ready. And you're like, no, like, where are these documents? And it'll take them sometimes weeks even to find something because it's not that's, a priority. That's a good one. Weeks. And, well, <laughs> they're paying a retainer. <laughs> oh yeah, there's that too. So what I found is, it's the, are you talking to the founders? I think the founders are, the, are typically, especially if they've been self-funding or they've friends and families or a few angels, right? They're not always aware of the time frame it takes to do the process. No one's of aware of the time well, frame. Are you? Nobody is, but they definitely aren't. So they're like, let's do this. 
And and I have seen where not only is it not aware of the time frame, but also feels that doing the work you just talked about, getting the data room, getting things up to speed is just a stall tactic for other people. And it's not. And you asked me one of the things that I've done with a lot of companies is because I come from now this outside perspective, look, companies talk to themselves all the time. You spend all this time and founders, they're amazing, right? They spend their time brainstorming and talking and speaking, but you start to just speak to yourself. And so you can see that when you're looking at a lot of their preparation, whether it's their pitch deck, whether it's their one-sheeter, whether it's their financial model, that then you probably see it in websites. But if we take that out and just think about the documentation that's needed to really hit the ground, it, it, is, it is a, can be a story that's way too long, that doesn't make sense, that's too filled with lingo that nobody understands, even though you think everybody does, or you think that projects better. It doesn't. It's not concise. It doesn't go back to why are you doing this? Why are you looking for the funding? What are you using the funding dollars for? What is the real trajectory? No, you aren't going to increase sales by three, in three months by that much. I'm telling you, you are not going to do it. So I spend a quick amount of time or upfront reviewing those and giving feedback right away. Going, this, is, this will get booted just by the submission. <laughs> because it's not clear. So I think it's important to have that preparation, but founders are often a little leery of it because it feels like it's just this exercise. I'm like, no, it's a legit exercise. <laughs> Painful is right. During that time, I'll notice you'll get to meet the founders that are coachable and the ones yeah. that won't listen to anyone. At, right there at that moment, when you're looking over things and you're giving some feedback, it's like right there, okay, worked with this person or how do I get off the Zoom call as quickly as possible? <laughs> I think also I've worked with founders who, which is rare, but interesting, when there's obstacles, they, there's the desire to have it be someone else's fault, which is a strange thing. If you think about a founder, again, I have immense respect for them because they've come up with an idea and they've done it. They figured out, especially founder, you have a CEO that's been brought in, those are different, but the founder, like, wow, you actually did this. So they tend to be aggressive and self-promoting and really good about doing things. But then when things go south, it's somebody else's fault. <laughs> and I haven't quite figured out how that happens. <laughs> so, so on one of a past episode, we, we went over the traits of the guests on the show and we talked about how the ones that had, and, and you can look at the wealth of a lot of these people mm -hmm. online. Oh yeah, the most successful ones. Every time there was a problem, when they're telling stories about their company, every time there's a problem, it was Ooh, I, I. And every time something was good, it was we did this, we did that. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy because there's almost this inflection point of companies that founders that get to hear, where it's that one's good, we one is bad, and then the rat like that small percentage that make it past there that change it to faults are mine. Successes are ours. Absolutely. Well, you could translate that to outside of founders, right? Those are managers and leaders in organizations. If you look at people who are really strong leaders in any company, in most companies, they are advocates for their teams. They're advocates for the collective good, not just their team against another team, but right. really what are we doing? They're advocates for that. Certainly you, and, and often are worse advocates for themselves but also understand that they have to take responsibility, especially when speaking to 
another in the executive team, taking responsibility as your own, because you were ultimately responsible, but letting others have the glory. So I think that it's a, an example at any level when, and I would say anybody going up and becoming, moving from independent worker to a manager to a this to that, those are things that you should take along with you and learn. And it's often why, in other cases, people who are independent, individual contributors, struggle to flip to management because they go from individual contributors. And if they don't have that fundamental embracing, it's hard to make the switch, but it can be done. So I think those are very good traits across the board. There was one thing on the transaction cycle mm. that we talked about the things taking longer and that deal fatigue. Oh, but one God. thing I to double click on is it hits everyone on the company, but also significant others, yeah. family. Yep. And, and there's times when I'm talking to these people in these transactions and it's crazy because it's like, what's wrong? It's like, oh, I had an argument with my significant other because, well, I, I promised them by now we'd be on vacation yeah. or we'd be doing something else. And it looks like we got another three, four months. Yeah, it impacts everybody. And in fact, we spoke, I think once before, a, a kind of when you really look at, a, at the sort of census of a company, what is everybody, the, your census? And you can't make all your decisions based on your census of your company, but as a data point to bring it in, do you have people, where are their ages? What are their stages? And we love to say personal, you don't bring personal. That's a ridiculous statement. Of course, everybody's broader world influences deal stage, it, revenue generation, maintenance, it, it just, it has to. And even as a company, if you're doing a deal, what values do you want out of the deal? Like, what do you, again, what are you offering to the teams? Because there's things that come with it, right? Like there may be risks due to the census you have versus the census of the, that makes up the other company. Those could tr dramatically change your kind of benefits and your things that you have to consider. And how does that, what is the risk potential in one or the other? And because it isn't just me, it's the people around me and the makeup around me. So I think it's a really critical factor that is often forgotten when discussing deals. What are your thoughts around that either career focus or family focus and that timeline? Because here in Silicon Valley, you'll meet people that gave up on a family just for a career or started that family very early. And throughout their, it's a lot yeah. of different choices. There are a lot of different choices. And I, I go back to, you can't pretend, although we want to, and I know when I started my career, we certainly never spoke about anything outside of the office. And then I also was in a part where it came together. I think we're thankfully in a more approachable business environment where people can, we, someone has, so has kids or they don't have kids, or maybe they're a caretaker for their parents. So I often, one of the things that I try to encourage any kind of leadership team to consider their census, their company census. So back in the fun days, right, big deal to have happy hours at five o'clock on a Friday, have company meetings that were then have late nights, have hack hackathons and have this and that. Well, you know what? That only really worked for a group of people. And if you didn't fit into that group of people, whether because you were, you didn't have a family you had to go home to, you had the flexibility, maybe you weren't in going to after school, after work, or whatever that might look like, you could participate. And therefore, the company viewed that as a positive. And the company also viewed that as a perk, right? We do these great happy hours, and we have our meetings, and they're fun, and everybody gets to know each other. Well, it actually wasn't a perk for a big chunk of your folks, because for whatever reasons, they couldn't participate without 
some external impact. So I think it's important not to do away with them, but maybe you have those earlier in the day, maybe they aren't mandatory, or how do you build needs and opportunities that take into consideration what we have today, which is remote employees, people who are caretaking above and below, right? Older and younger, people who are just starting out and need the social environment of an office, people who are fatigued with social environment of the office, and all of those things. And you can't make everybody happy, but at the very minimum, be aware of what your company's makeup is. Obviously, the larger, most huge companies, that's a different, but we're talking about our Silicon Valley family of um, startups to mid-stage kind of companies. You still have some flexibility there. And I think it's, we need to be more flexible in what we request and what we offer. I, even at my role at the agency when I was CEO, I left at five o'clock. I had an hour commute. I left at five. I took calls in the car from, I, I got on BART and then I took calls in the car from the BART station to the house. I put it down and I got back on at 8.30. And I did that from the day I walked in. And had I not, I probably, I don't know if I would have been able to do it, but it was just known. It was just a known thing. This is what was going to happen because the timeline and what I had to do and my ex, where I had to be at that point for my stage of life at that moment, that was the only way I could have do it. So I'm like, look, I'm here. I'm all you for these hours. Then I have to leave and I have a gap and then I'm back. And so we have to start to realize that sometimes that's what it is. And especially in an area where we, people, if they are going in, are commuting long distances, that adds a lot to your day. And if you aren't going in, you still have disruption, right? You still have to stop at some moment in time for something. So I just think there are important factors when looking at the makeup and how you, what you believe you want to offer to your teams. In, in all cases. So I don't know if I went off track for you on that, but. So after being CEO, what was life like then? I would imagine mine was similar to many people's. I, so I was not a founder CEO. I was a CEO that was brought in for particular reasons. And I came in a different role and then took over at that point. The transitions from people out of CEO. And again, I think founders are different. Founder CEOs, it's often giving up to the baby. Like, oh my God, this is my baby. Someone else is making decisions. And but I've seen an amazing, I've seen amazing transitions where they move into an executive role for a while, but I haven't seen it last a long time because it's still different and it's harder. For me personally, the biggest challenge is realigning expectations, right? You're, you still value, I think I would say to any CEO, you have to let go. It's not about title. Those, in Silicon Valley, we didn't always care about titles, but the other part of the world does. So you often have to try to align with that, but it's like, you have to give up your title. You have to, but you have to understand that you bring a broad perspective. If you were a CEO, you probably have broad general management. You have understanding of business. You have all of the things that are unique and whatever space you were in. So those are still a value. So what is it that you want to do with a company, wherever it is, and care about what the role is and what the work is, which I would say to most people, but hopefully, I think for CEOs, that's a harder because there's a transition. And, and sometimes it's into consulting and sometimes it's into another role and sometimes it's into a larger company or a smaller company. And all of those have nuances. I think the hardest thing is what, it, what do you do? And you're used to doing, having the big picture. I think the hardest thing for me was going into anything that was a small picture, right? It was no longer broader, of course, at all, but they needed something 
more finite. And those are, I think, the hardest transition because by nature, if you run in a CEO, you tend to have a larger perspective. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you're supposed to have a view of the whole picture, even though you, and then you have people who are really smart in each of those areas, but you can take it all in. So yeah, it was, it's a transition, I would think, for anybody. So say one of these founders, they don't actually sell their company, but they're in the situation where they're backed by one of these family offices or someone that had a huge exit. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems like there's limitless money. Mm -hmm. What type of problems could they run into? So I would, I call them highly funded startups. That, so you were talking about a company who they've got a lot of money, they're doing something, they're building it. So we're not, we're a startup. In my experience, when we all need money to do the things we need to do. We just talked about it, right? You have to be able to pay your teams. You have to be able to motivate. You have to spend money to get there. But it's the, what is the foundational financial plan and business plan that you have in place and trying to stay true to that? In my experience, when funds are limitless, it's really quick to overhire. And I would say overhire with weird compensation packets, you start to go, oh, but if we had X or Y to throw anything against the wall to see what fit, what sticks, deviate from even any build plan. If it, you're a technology company or if you're just a company that works in kind of anything with development, sort of solutions development, and then T&E goes crazy and you start to lose the momentum of, of really of structured finances. That, that is just, in my experience, what I've seen happen. And then you end up having to pull back, right? Now people have started to get a taste. I'm not saying that if you don't have it to be good, like, wow, we have it sooner. We have an influx of funds. What's our best path? Oh, our best path is a development. We've been wanting to get this engineering thing going, or we need to really increase our sales team because this is why, and these are the challenges they're hitting, or we need to have the infrastructure, right? That's the other issue. You can grow all you want, but if you haven't set up an infrastructure to hold it, it's like any country. I always talk about a place I love to travel in Mexico, one of my most favorite places. Last time I went, I don't think I can ever go back. The infrastructure can't support the growth of the tourism that took place in this little place. And it's just like that with a company when you don't plan it and map it. So you can't always spend the money on the fun baubles. You have to make sure that you're building up the infrastructure to support where you're growing. and Sometimes that can go to the wayside too. So my only recommendations go back to make sure you have a solid foundation of that financial plan and stick to it to some extent. And same with your roadmap. Might be able to loosen the reins a little bit, but it's, you don't want to become too lax because it's really easy to get very lax. And those are the problems that, that I've seen in most cases. So speaking of vacation, speaking of problems, mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, you've been in Silicon Valley a while, CEO level, all these acquisitions, all these mergers, would you say there's any disconnect between maybe the Silicon Valley elite? I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> and the rest of the world? You talk about my passion world. Yes, there is. <laughs> so, so, okay. The, the most obvious of all is, I'll start with, of course, like-minded, like like worlds connect and stay connected. So it makes sense. It, it certainly makes sense that successful people with certain incomes run in circles together, right? Let, let's just, that, that's just a true truth of the world. I think the challenge in Silicon Valley is the bubble is bigger and harder and tighter. 
and it is insulated from a lot of the realities. United States in general, we have great disparity between the, the, those with a lot of money and those with not. And I think you could turn on the news and we always talk about the middle that gets crunched. It's reflected more so here. And a quick example, which I won't go long into, but Marissa Mayer, when she went to Yahoo, right? She goes to Yahoo, builds out a nursery and brings her kid. And interestingly on that, she was both applauded and vilified. So vilified by people who rightly would not be able to do that. Like, I can't, one, afford to it, nor would I be allowed to build a nursery. And what a luxury to be able to have my baby. So that doesn't make sense. But applauded on the other side by similar like-minded, like kind of wealth people of saying, look at that commitment, right? Five days in or whatever it was after a baby brings it in is right back at work. So it tells you those perspectives are both valid, but they're from the opposite side. So I won't, we've trashed that. I'll go into another one that's more of a real world and the way that I like to work with businesses around this. And it's, there's data points that are important to take into consideration when you're making your decisions. It doesn't, I'm not saying it will change it to understand that elite perspective, but I will give a great example of healthcare, another hot topic in the world. But, you know, healthcare is an important part for people to have as a benefit when they join a company. They look at it. There's all kinds of things and there's all sorts of choices on it. But so let's well, example of a small company with not too many employees, but pretty good funding, got some revenue in. Or maybe a mid-sized, maybe they have 10, 10 million or maybe or 5 million. Let's just somewhere in there. So so earlier, one of the things they want to offer is we don't have a monthly, we don't take out a monthly out of your paycheck. We, we're going to cover all those costs for your healthcare. So this is great. It's like employee, employer supported. Amazing. And it's, and by the way, it's a POP. So you can go whoever you want. Great healthcare system. That's all wonderful. And it, and it helps. So for the employer, employee, they get what they want. They have really good healthcare and go anywhere. And guess what? It doesn't matter if there's a high deductible. It doesn't matter if there's extra bills. If somebody happens, I can pay the, the disparity because usually that kind of a plan only covers, let's say 70 or 80%. So there's still a bill if you have to go. That's okay. For the employee, as long as life isn't bumpy, it's amazing, right? I don't have anything taken out of my paycheck. I appreciate it. This is phenomenal. But if something happens to me or one of my dependents or anything, the bills are pretty extensive and they're unexpected. I'm not saying that isn't the right answer for a company. I'm not saying that isn't an amazingly one of the good choices for everyone to consider. I'm just saying companies need to think about it of what, again, is the census of your organization? What does that makeup look like? And what are the value, what would be valuable to the broader, like what is that 80-20 rule? And if you're smaller, the, the 80 might be your elite founders. But as you start to grow, your 80 flips and that 80% is a little bit different. So those are the things that I look at where there's just even a disconnect as the way it flows into the development of your business and the decisions that you have to make when you're building out your infrastructure for your company. And I want to see leaders consider those things more at least know they're getting on the table when decisions are being made. <laughs> How that you know, decision ultimately happens may or may not change, but at least to know that they're starting to be integrated in a better way. Speaking of leadership, how does one go from a, a CEO and that career path or executive to that role of that mentor, advisor, consultant? Mm -hmm. How does that transition happen? Well, I think mentor and advisor, I think those happen from the day you start working, right? Your mentor talks to all of us. Everyone at <laughs> Everyone home, knows my, my mentor is my two sing. Yeah. 
And she's a good one. And so I think, and I have, I've been fortunate to have some really good mentors and one of my great mentors, shout out Jeff Beard, who's I've worked with at an early stage startup where we literally walked around with an Excel spreadsheet selling our product. Like we didn't get crazy fancy, make it too complicated. It's like, here's what we're doing. He's done a couple of exits. Great. But you know what? He started as just someone who listened, who cared about and was concerned about individual evolution of another person's profession and helped out, right? That's how he started. We worked together, but he gave more than a job description. He gave more. That's how mentorship typically starts. So I think when you are leaving a particular role, that innate piece of you probably goes with you. So you continue to do reach outs and networking and so forth. And that's where the challenge can be because you probably do a lot of it and continue to do it and you have no income come from it. But there's, so there's that line that's a, a mentor that is part of your heart and your value. And then there's how do you transition that into advisor that it has a fee associated with it or consultant that has a fee associated to it. And that becomes the challenge. Um, but it starts with your networking, right? So you go from that Thing that's probably innate with you and start talking to people and the people you used to do business with and your clients and the things that you knew what are your biggest challenges and what are your biggest obstacles and what is the question everyone asks what keeps you up at night or however you want to frame that and it allows you to tighten up how you would take your knowledge and address it specifically to some needs and then you continue and say, well, let, you know, I'm, I want to help out. And here's what I can do and be very specific about it. And here's what it looks like. And then my thought would be, and also be very open to doing, supporting in ways you wouldn't have expected. I've done even project management work because it was getting disparate groups together to do work. But if you really nailed it down, it was project management. But in their mind, it's like, well, we can't get everyone on the same page. We can't get this. So how do you, so open-minded to doing other things and then letting everyone know that's what you want to do. And then I would say over time, how you're going to do that is evolve. My, my strongest though conviction is making sure that you understand for yourself where the line is that is free and is not free. And then how do you set up whether it's project-based, typically project-based is easier to begin than hourly because it gets crazy and people get a little weird about it in the early stage. Or is it revenue-based or is it kind of payment plans? Like how, what is it that I'm going to offer you? And I typically say, don't go for equity. At least not that. That's a different conversation. That's a long haul. I'll be an advisor for you for many years. But for the work I'm going to do over the next nine, six months, there's a fee. Like those are two different sides of a negotiation piece. When you first start talking to a company, where do you most often find the skeletons? Most often skeletons. I have three places that I say they're in probably a little bit in product development or solutions development. So that's a workflow, what's happening. I would say your clients have a great number of, it's a valuable place to be, right? Even your most happy client, I will have some little tidbit or insight that will, that can help or hurt. So what's that back end? And then I think flow of dollars, where is the money really being spent? Where's it coming from and where is it being spent? And, and I say that goes goes back to a conversation we had earlier about you can bring in a bunch of clients, but if you're losing them out the back door, right? If we're, there's not a management or a understanding of that, that's a, there's something not right. And it could be a delivery issue. It could be 
clients aren't satisfied once they get in. You don't know, but those are the skeletons. It's like watching the, the money flow of what's really happening and then talking with that client base. I think you find your biggest pieces in that connection right there. Of It goes to the same three dots that I said businesses have a hard time connecting. It's sales, delivery, and, and that revenue generation, and then management. Those three things, you'll find the most skeletons. Because those are the people that are talking to each other. And those are the people that when, and the areas that if something's broken, it really falls apart. There's a lot of things that can break a little bit and it won't crush the company. I hate to say it if you're, and, and I come from marketing, but if your marketing ad doesn't say the exact right thing, it is not the end of the world. You can fix that. It won't destroy. There are places where I suppose it could, but generally it's not going to have the same sort of residual. But your inability to talk about your value which is a translation mark, your inability to deliver when you say, when you said, and how you said it, your ability to make sure that dollars are supporting your infrastructure to do that, your ability to keep your client once you get them on, those are the big pieces. And, if the, and those are the ones that I think get lost in sight sometimes. And then before wrapping up, is there anything you want to share with the audience, what you're working on right now? some things you're looking forward to the next 12, 24 months, anything you'd like to share. And then also what's the best way to get a hold of you yeah. and find out more? Mm. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm right now supporting a couple of companies that are doing some really cool things in very different worlds. One is some, a technology-driven company around data, which um, I never believed myself to be a data person. And I've been with three different data companies, which is funny. Um, but it's, it is about you know, where, um, how do you utilize that in your business for the best use of all the different things we use data for, right? Decision-making, marketing, and so forth. So I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing with them. And I think they are going to, they're early stage, super smart people, very good founders. And so I'm excited to watch and to be part of where that's going. And also one of my passions is in sort of the health and wellness space. And so I'm working with a company who's um, doing a lot in that arena. And that's exciting. The next 12, 12 or 24 months, I don't know. I think there's I'm I think that we're at such a great movement post pandemic that we have a new reality of how life and business works. We have a new reality of flexibility and openness hope, hopefully for how work can get done productively and efficiently and I think there's so many new opportunities of technology out there. I'm excited to see where it goes and hope to continue to help companies as they put their arms around that stuff and navigate it that they do them in thoughtful, but expedited, productive manners. So that's what I'm excited about. The best way to get me, I'm in the middle of, speaking of brand, as we talked about earlier, I'm in the middle of, I'll be relaunching my own website. It's a pieces of sand, grain by grain, unleashing sustainable growth. For those of you, I live on the coast and I've always been a water person, but if you think of what a grain of sand is, right? They're all individual and unique, but it can be cement. Can be an oceanfront, can be glass, and and it is impacted by the elements of outside, which is pretty much how I see companies and all of us with our individualized, unique perspectives and each element have an impact. So I'm, I'll be relaunching that. But until then, LinkedIn is my best, your best spot to find me. I have you can reach me through there through emails and communications. But I'll be putting out more content soon. 
A fun fact when you're talking about sand, my Chinese name is 10,000 Pieces of Sand. Is it really? translated. Oh so. my goodness, 10,000 Pieces of Sand. So, Shawan. Shawan. Iwan the Wan. So, Shawan. I want to so, go off on that. I can think of so. Yeah, yeah see, I'll, there you are. I'll, you're perfect. By- <laughs> I'll, I'll draw it for you afterwards. You so. can. You can. I'll have it down on the, on the subline of my Pieces of Sand. <laughs> It's important. <laughs> and then for our audience out there, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm an investor baker, focus on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me also on LinkedIn at Sean Flynn. Open to have conversations early on. And with that, I really want to thank you for your time this week oh, on the Silicon Valley so podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was lots of fun. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.